You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Your Brain on Facts book, available now. Want the facts without my voice? Get the Your Brain on Facts book. But if you want my voice without the facts, I am available for hire for voiceover work. No job too small, and my listeners get 50% off. Email me at moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com. Valentina Tereshkova was 22 years old when she made her first parachute jump with a local aviation club in 1959, and she loved it. Unbeknownst to her, this exhilarating pastime was giving her skills that would bring her to the attention of the Soviet government. The Soviets needed someone who could handle themselves jumping from 20,000 feet. The mandatory ejection altitude from the re-entry of a rocket capsule. One of the many facets of the space race that the Soviets wanted to win was to have the first woman in space. In February 1962, Tereshkova and four other women, three parachutists and one pilot, began the intensive training to become cosmonauts. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're headed toward another presidential election, and it seems like both a minute ago and an eternity ago that we had a female candidate for president. What most people don't know is that the first female candidate ran before she was even allowed to vote. Victoria Claflin, later Victoria Woodhull, was one of 10 children born to an illiterate mother and a petty criminal father. Woodhull attended school sporadically for a few years. At age 15, she married a doctor who soon revealed himself to be an alcoholic philanderer. To make matters worse, the 16-year-old Woodhull gave birth to a mentally handicapped son who would need extra care in 1854. Three of Woodhull's siblings had died as children, and she claimed she had clairvoyant powers to communicate with them. Always looking for a new scam to run, Her father put her on the road with her sister, Tennessee, as a faith-healing and fortune-telling act, selling elixirs that promised to cure everything from asthma to cancer. They didn't. In fact, Tennessee was indicted for manslaughter after one of her patients died. By some good fortune that I don't know, the sisters found themselves with a wealthy patron in the form of railroad magnate Cornelius Vanderbilt. He and Tennessee were rumored to be lovers. Stock tips that she picked up during their relationship came in pretty handy during an 1869 gold panic, during which the sisters supposedly netted $700,000. With Vanderbilt's bankrolling, Victoria and Tennessee then opened their own highly publicized firm named Woodhull, Claflin & Company, becoming the first female stockbrokers on Wall Street. However, they were never granted a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. 
it would take another near century before Muriel Siebert did in 1967. In the same year that she became a stockbroker, Woodhull attended her first suffragette rally and immediately became a passionate devotee of the cause. She befriended, or beguiled, a congressman to get her an invitation to testify before the House Judiciary Committee. She argued that women did already have the right to vote under the 14th and 15th Amendments. Those granted persons born or naturalized in the United States citizenship and prohibited voter discrimination. But the House declined to enact any legislation on the matter. Even still, the appearance made her a celebrity among suffragettes. In April of 1870, just two months after opening her brokerage firm, Woodhull announced her candidacy for President of the United States on a platform of women's suffrage, regulation of monopolies, nationalization of railroads, an eight-hour workday, direct taxation, abolition of the death penalty, and welfare for the poor. Woodhull helped organize the Equal Rights Party, which nominated her at its May 1872 convention. Famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass was selected as her running mate, and told about it eventually. He never acknowledged it officially, and in fact he campaigned for the incumbent Republican Ulysses S. Grant. Woodhull's name only appeared on ballots in a couple of states. No one knows for certain how many votes she received because apparently they weren't counted. All of this was essentially moot, though, considering that Woodhull did not reach the constitutionally required age of 35 until six months after the inauguration. It would be 1964 before a woman was actively considered for a nomination of a major party. When Margaret Chase Smith qualified for the ballot of six state primaries, even coming in second in Illinois. The only female candidate other than Clinton was Faith Spotted Eagle, a Native American activist who received a vote from Robert Sacktrum Jr., who's referred to as a faithless elector for not voting as pledged. Sacktrum also voted for Winona LeDuc for vice president. LeDuc is executive director of Honor the Earth, a Native environmental advocacy organization which plays an active role in the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. The first American woman to win gold at the Olympics passed away 55 years later, never even realizing she had competed in the Olympics. At the 1900 Paris Games, Margaret Ives Abbott, born in 1878, won the women's nine-hole golf tournament on May 22nd, narrowly beating out England's Charlotte Cooper, who won the tennis singles event on July 11th to claim firsties. She was awarded a porcelain bowl rather than the medals that were used to, something not done before or since at a summer games. 1900 was the first year in which women were even allowed to compete, seeing 11 female athletes in the more ladylike sports of golf, tennis, and yachting. The Olympics were held as part of the 1900 Paris World's Fair, but due to staggeringly poor organization, many of the competitors, including Abbott, didn't realize the events they participated in were part of the Olympics and not part of the wider World's Fair. Other events held at the fair but not approved by the IOC included kite flying, 
motorcycle racing, and firefighting. The official competitions included cricket, croquet, a variation of handball called basque palata, tug of war, and swimming, for which one winner was awarded a 50-pound bronze statue of a horse. This was also the only Olympic Games in history that used live animals, specifically pigeons, during the shooting events. Some 10 million people were glued to their television sets on Saturday nights in 1993 to follow the trials and tribulations of pioneer and pioneering female physician Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Little did fans know, the first female doctor in America had received her license a scant two decades before that show takes place. Elizabeth Blackwell was born in a then-prosperous British family, the third of nine children in 1821. Blackwell loved education and learning and helped to support her family working as a teacher alongside her mother and two sisters after the death of her father. The inspiration to study medicine came from a friend who was dying of cancer and complained of the difficulty of being examined by a male doctor. Blackwell's pursuit would be no mean feat, as women were considered not only intellectually but morally unfit to practice medicine. Not to mention, little higher education was available to women, and medical school was, then as it is now, very expensive. Blackwell read medical textbooks in her landlord, Dr. Reverend John Dixon's library, while continuing to teach and save up money for tuition. After being rejected by all 29 medical schools in Philadelphia and New York, Blackwell began applying to lesser-known schools, eventually being accepted at Geneva Medical College in western New York State. The administration had actually let the students decide whether or not to admit a woman. The boys thought it was a big joke and voted yes. A woman studying medicine was such an aberration at the time that people would stop and stare at her on the streets. Blackwell stayed focused and devoted herself utterly to her studies. Even though she started mid-term, she became the head of her class and stayed there until she graduated in 1849 at age 28. A medical degree was no blank check, however. When Blackwell went to Europe to broaden her studies, no hospital would accept her, except for one in Paris, on the condition that she be a student midwife and not a doctor. Her dreams of being a surgeon would be taken from her completely, along with one of her eyes, by purulent ophthalmalia, a severe conjunctivitis often arising from gonorrhea which she contracted from handling a patient. Germ theory and widespread hand-washing for doctors were still a decade away. Moving back to New York, Blackwell determined to open her own practice, but no landlord in the city would rent space to her for it. Eventually, she hung out her shingle in Jersey City, where business was initially pretty slow. To get her name out, Blackwell began giving lectures on women's health and wrote articles on the importance of good hygiene, exercise, and physical education for girls in schools. Her sister Emily would receive her degree in 1853, and the two opened a women's and children's clinic in the slums of New York along with German midwife-turned-doctor Marie Zakoswerska. 
After their first clinic closed, they opened the New York Infirmary for Women and Children, which still exists to this day as Beekman Downtown Hospital. It not only served the poor, but provided a training facility and positions for female medical and nursing students. Blackwell would return to England to lecture and become the first woman to have her name entered on the medical register of the United Kingdom. A constant advocate for sanitary conditions, Blackwell helped to establish the U.S. Sanitary Commission in 1861, a private relief agency created by federal legislation to support sick and wounded soldiers of the American Civil War. She also contributed by organizing a unit of female field doctors and nurses. In 1868, she founded the Women's Medical College of the New York Infirmary. One of the school students was Sophia Jex Blake, who would later open a medical school for women in London. Among the infirmary's first residents was Dr. Rebecca Cole, only the second African-American woman to become a doctor in the United States. Cole received her degree in 1867, two years after the end of the Civil War, and three years after Rebecca Lee Crumpler did. Elizabeth Blackwell overcame many hurdles that society had positioned between her and her desire to become a doctor. For Rebecca Lee Crumpler, the journey would be even more difficult. Born in 1831 in Delaware, Crumpler was raised by an aunt in Pennsylvania who spent much of her time caring for sick and invalid neighbors. At age 21, she moved to Boston, where she would work as a nurse for eight years. Crumpler had to train on the job, as the first formal school of nursing wouldn't open for another 22 years. She was admitted to New England Female Medical College in 1860 on a scholarship from the Wade Scholarship Fund, which was established by the Ohio abolitionist Benjamin Wade. At that time, of the 54,000 physicians in the United States, only 300 were women, and exactly zero of them were African American. As late as 1920, there were only 65 African American women doctors in the United States. On March 1, 1864, the Board of Trustees named her a Doctor of Medicine making her the first African-American woman in the United States to earn the degree and the only African-American woman to graduate from the New England Female Medical College until it closed nine years later. After the Civil War ended in 1865, she moved to Richmond, Virginia, believing it to be, quote, a proper field for real missionary work and one that would present ample opportunities to become acquainted with the diseases of women and children. She also provided medical care to freed slaves under the U.S. Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, an unpopular agency that was only intended to last for one year after the end of the war, but lasted for seven. It will come as no surprise that Crumpler was subjected to intense racism and sexism. According to one source, men doctors snubbed her, druggists balked at filling her prescriptions, and some people wisecracked that the M.D. behind her name stood for nothing more than Mule Driver. In 1883, Crumpler published a book of medical discourses from the notes that she kept over the course of her career, one of the first books by an African-American author about medicine. 
It was dedicated to mothers, nurses, and all who desire to mitigate the afflictions of the human race, and focused on the medical care of women and children. Crumpler described the progression of the experiences that led her to study and practice medicine. It may be well to state here that, having been reared by a kind aunt in Pennsylvania, whose usefulness with the sick was continually sought, I early conceived a liking for and sought every opportunity to relieve the suffering of others. Her book also contains much of what we know about Crumpler in its introduction. Few records and only one possible photograph of her have survived. This is where I was going to do a clever segue from Rebecca Crumpler to my Patreon supporters, but I couldn't come up with anything that didn't sound really shallow, so thank you to my Patreon supporters. Our newest supporters joining in the past month, Dawn and Gwen, recently got to hear a bonus mini-episode about the traditional folklore origin of a number of your favorite Pokemon. And you know you want to hear about that. And don't forget that until we have found a way to reopen safely and we can call the COVID crisis under control, all tiers at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts are receiving all levels of rewards. And also a big thanks to recent reviewers, both of the podcast and of the Your Brain on Facts book. You do have your copy of the book, right? This reassuring review comes from Bill S., who says... You're in the right place, friend. This is your source for the coolest little-known facts and corrections on everything you thought you understood. The author writes as she speaks with a delightful blend of humor, wit, and intelligence. Thank you so much, Bill, and thank you to everyone who's leaving reviews, because it helps to please the mysterious Amazon algorithm, so when somebody looks for a book similar to mine, it might show it to them. And thanks also to... Jan Jen, or, not, or maybe Jan Gen, sorry, who reviewed the podcast saying, Love, love, love this show. Can't get enough of the great writing and Moxie's rich voice. Like chocolate for your ears. Keep it up, girl. I bought the book too. Fantastic. No, you're fantastic. And don't be surprised if you ever see merch with the phrase chocolate for your ears. Hey, let's brainstorm this. What if it was chocolate for your ears and something for your brain. Okay, hop over to our social media, Facebook and Instagram, slash your brain on facts and Twitter at brain on facts pod and fill in the blank. Chocolate for your ears, blank for your mind. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. 
A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Three years before the death of Rebecca Crumpler in 1895, Bessie Coleman, the first female African-American pilot, was born the 10th of 13 children in rural Texas. I wonder if they ever figured out what caused it. Her father was a tenant farmer who, along with her older brothers, abandoned the family, leaving Coleman to care for her younger sisters as her mother struggled to provide for them. Even through all that, Coleman still managed to make it to the one-room schoolhouse four miles away most of the time, or at least borrow books from a traveling library wagon when she couldn't. And that's a service I think we need to bring back to sweet. Coleman was able to pay her way through one semester at Langston University in Oklahoma while working as a laundress, but couldn't afford to continue any longer. Coleman moved to Chicago, where two of her brothers lived. Both had served in World War I and told stories of French women who could be pilots. Seeing no reason why she couldn't be a pilot as well, Coleman sought out every flight school she could find. Every one turned her down, whether it was for being a woman, African-American, or both. Dealer's choice. Undeterred, Coleman figured that if women in France were allowed to fly, then she should go to France. So Coleman found herself the only female and only person of color at the Caudron Brothers School of Aviation, where she completed the 10-month course in seven months. On June 15, 1921, Bessie took the test for her pilot's license and passed. She received her license from La Fédération Aeronautique Internationale, which I didn't need to overpronounce, but that's just fun. Now that she had a pilot's license, she had to find a way to earn a living with it. Widespread commercial air travel was still a ways away, but World War I produced a surplus of small aircrafts and pilots, which created industries like giving pleasure rides or acrobatic flying shows, prompting Coleman to return to Europe for six months for more advanced training. Debuting in the U.S. in September of 1922, the diminutive Coleman wore a military-looking uniform to help her seem more important and official as she boarded her plane. The crowd was amazed as she performed figure-eights, loop-de-loops, barrel rolls, and other barnstorming stunts. She quickly became Queen Bess, Daredevil Aviatrix. The legend of Queen Bess spread, and Coleman began to draw huge crowds of both black and white audiences wherever she went. When Coleman returned to her home state of Texas to perform in 1925, she refused to perform at venues with segregated gates. But for even the most successful performance aviator, it's an expensive career. There's plane repair, she had doctor's bills from a bad crash, and had to purchase a whole new plane. In addition to this, 
it was Coleman's dream to open a school of aviation specifically for African-American students. Saving for that school was difficult, so Coleman began to supplement her pilot income with lectures, as well as getting out of her comfort zone by getting out of the cockpit for parachute jumps and wing walking. On April 30th, 1926, while preparing for an air show in Jacksonville, Florida, Coleman and her mechanic went to scout locations for parachute jumps the following day. Observers reported the plane went into a dive and flipped. Coleman was thrown from the plane and died immediately. The plane crashed to the ground, killing the mechanic. It was later determined that a loose wrench had become jammed in the plane's controls. Over 10,000 people attended Coleman's funeral in Chicago. Three years later, the Bessie Coleman Aero Club was established. The school Coleman dreamed of trained many outstanding African-American pilots, including Willa Brown and many of the Tuskegee Airmen. For years afterwards, the Challenger Pilots Association of Chicago, and later the Tuskegee Airmen, did a flyover of Lincoln Cemetery on Coleman's birthday. While barnstorming was the thing to see in the Roaring Twenties, if you ask a member of Generation X or older to name a famous stunt performer, they would probably say Evil Knievel, the motorcycle-jumping holder of Guinness's world record for most broken bones in a lifetime, no joke, at 433. But when it comes to originality, Knievel pales in comparison to Annie Edson Taylor, the first person female or male, to survive going over Niagara Falls in a barrel in October 1901. This was a dangerous and exciting feat of daring do, pulled off by a very proper and arguably bland person. Widowed by the Civil War, Taylor was having trouble making ends meet on her school teacher's salary. Guess nothing new under the sun, I guess. From her home in Michigan, she read about the Pan-American Exposition, a World's Fair-type event being held in Buffalo, which would later be remembered primarily as the scene of President McKinley's assassination. Taylor was struck with an idea for what was essentially an absolutely bonkers retirement plan. With hundreds of thousands of people in the area for the Expo, Taylor set her sights to fame and fortune. With the sometimes reluctant help of two assistants, Taylor made a modified pickle barrel, five feet tall by three feet in diameter, and outfitted it with cushions, including her lucky heart-shaped satin pillow, and a leather harness to hold her in place. Lead weights would keep the barrel upright. She tested the barrel first with a cat, who thankfully survived, and if it was her cat, I assume threw up in her shoes for the rest of its natural life. If you look online, you can see a photo of Taylor posing with the barrel and a surprisingly calm-looking cat. The plunge was set for October 24th, Taylor's 63rd birthday, though she told the press she was 43. Even with everything in place, the stunt almost didn't happen. The crew of the boat that had been hired to tow the barrel to the middle of the fast-flowing Niagara River was reluctant to help what seemed like a nice old lady's suicide. Finally, at 4 p.m., Taylor was sealed into the barrel, towed to the appointed spot, and cut loose. 
The rapids knocked the barrel around violently for nearly 20 minutes before it plunged over Horseshoe Falls. Taylor emerged from the barrel badly shaken with a small laceration to her scalp, but otherwise unharmed. Fame came immediately and left almost as quickly. Photo ops and speaking engagements were set up for the woman dubbed Queen of the Mist. But Taylor reportedly lacked any kind of charisma as a public speaker. Audiences found her somnambulant. The public quickly lost interest and moved on. Making it that much harder to pull in a crowd, Taylor's manager Frank Russell absconded with the famous barrel, the key visual of her presentation. He also took much of her earnings, and Taylor spent the rest hiring private investigators to try to find him. Though Taylor would die penniless in a nursing home at age 82, the name Queen of the Mist lives on in the form of a tart, barrel-aged beer from Martin House Brewery in Texas, as well as an off-Broadway musical from 2011. Taylor was even the subject of an episode of the Nickelodeon game show Legends of the Hidden Temple, and if that's not immortality, I don't know what is. She's buried in the Stunters section of the Oakwood Cemetery in Niagara Falls, New York. The first man to survive going over the falls was Bobby Leach, who made a custom metal barrel that looked rather like a submarine and in which he fractured both kneecaps and his jaw. Leach was able to parlay his accomplishments into a lucrative career until he died from injuries sustained from slipping on an orange peel. Taylor nearly didn't have the title of first person to survive a barrel-borne trip over the falls. Only a month earlier, an attempt was made by one Maud Willard. But disaster struck early on. Her barrel became caught in a whirlpool and was stuck there for hours. When it was finally pulled from the river, Willard was found dead of apparent suffocation. She had decided, for whatever reason, to take her pet fox terrier with her, and the dog, having much better survival instincts than its owner, had lodged its nose in the barrel's only air hole. While going over Niagara Falls may seem about as current as barn dances and chasing a metal hoop with a stick, as recently as 1995, a man named Robert Overacker went over Horseshoe Falls on a jet ski. And in case this story has planted the germ of a dangerous idea in my listener's mind, please be aware that of the 15 people who went over the falls for reasons other than suicide, five died. Also, going over the falls with or without a vessel is illegal on both the New York and Ontario sides. Despite inspiring more than a century's worth of copycats, Taylor herself was not an advocate of anyone else ever going over the falls. If it was with my dying breath, she was quoted as saying, I would caution anyone against attempting the feat. I would sooner walk up to the mouth of a cannon, knowing it was going to blow me to pieces, than make another trip over the falls. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But back to Valentina Tereshkova, who in 1963 was chosen to take part in a dual flight in the Vostok program. While cosmonaut Valery Bikovsky was circling in Vostok 5, Tereshkova was launched in Vostok 6. 
The two spacecraft came within three miles of one another, allowing them to communicate over their radios for a brief time. Tereshkova's craft was guided by an automatic control system, so she was never actually flying the rocket. After nearly three days in space, Vostok 6 re-entered the atmosphere, and Tereshkova successfully parachuted to Earth and into the history books as the first woman in space. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe out there. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.